Welcome to our podcast series, Let's Talk About the Anthropocene. We made this podcast in order to warm up for our online conference on the same topic. The conference is organized by the German Association of Anthropology, uh, and it is taking place from the 27th of September until the 1st of October. Postgraduate students from our Department of Anthropology at Bremen University have contacted some speakers who will contribute to the plenary sessions on uh, the themes of the conference, which are worlds, zones, atmospheres, seismographies of the Anthropocene. As we will focus on the significance of anthropological thinking and ethnographic expertise when dealing with the challenges of our time, namely living in a more-than-human-made world, moved by crisis, ruptures, and the necessity of radical change, it is a pleasure to talk to experts in advance and share their perspectives on social media. So, what exactly is meant by the concept of the Anthropocene, by different disciplines and in popular discourse? How has the debate developed and what kind of intellectual turns are in the making? What are contested questions and urgent challenges in the interdisciplinary conversation? We look forward to exploring these questions here. Now, about me. My name is Annika Brunsen. I am a recent graduate of the master's degree program Transcultural Studies at the University of Bremen, and I am very happy to be part of the social media team for the upcoming conference. We are very proud to begin our series with one of the very well-known scholars in the field of debates on the Anthropocene from an anthropological perspective. We have today Professor Gisli Pelsen from Iceland. He is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. One of Professor Pelsen's research focus fields is the nature-culture dynamic with a specific focus on the Anthropocene. He will also be speaking at the conference on the plenary titled Anthropology and Anthropocene, which we are all very much looking forward to. Um, the other keynote speaker will be Mona Bon. For now, our first episode, uh, we have this wonderful interview with Professor Paulson, where we discuss what it's like for for him to grow up with glaciers and volcanoes, why he chooses or chose to focus on the topics he focuses on, and his ideas on what the humanities can do for the planet. We hope you enjoy. Hello, Professor Paulson. Um, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to hear from you. Um, you'll actually be part of the very first episode. <laughs> so that's very exciting. Um, okay, well, let's get right into it. You were born in the Westman Islands off of Iceland's south coast, which is, of course, a fascinating location because uh, most people don't have volcanoes and glaciers in their lives and don't usually experience this in their lives. So that is actually quite interesting. Um, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about your life uh, there and after, and of course, what made you interested in anthropology? Uh, my childhood uh, was spent in the Westman Isles, 
south of Iceland, the mainland. And these were my first 19 years. I grew up in a fishing culture. My father was a, a fisherman and a truck driver and a laborer. And uh, uh, this was a quite an engaging environment in many ways. Uh, uh, children even started working early on in, in the fishing industry. I spent six summers in the countryside on the mainland uh, which, with relatives, which was fun and, and uh, eventful, lots of work but also lots of play, uh, horse riding and sport, etc. Uh, nature was overwhelming in the Westman Heights. Uh, huge and spectacular mountains and uh, the mainland in the distance with other mountains and, and uh, a glacier, Eyjafjallajökull, uh, the famous one. Uh, and, and the uh, uh, planet was active, uh, there was an eruption in 1963. I was a teenager and I watched it from the mainland, uh, uh, an island was born with lots of ash and lightnings and quite dramatic, so I think it drew my attention to, to the planet and, and later on I, I uh, uh, sort of addressed geology on anthropological terms. Uh, I, uh, went to the mainland in the winters for the secondary grammar school um, and I uh, took the so-called uh, science line, uh, physics, mathematics, chemistry, etc. And uh, uh, I met lots of students from different parts of the country so this opened up my tiny island universe and, and uh, during the last year at the gymnasium my attention shifted from science to uh, politics and uh, society and I guess the uh, student revolt, the 1968 movement had its impact and, and I, was, I was quite active and when I entered university and in '69, uh, uh, I decided to study social science. It was a new thing on campus, and uh, and it was fun. And uh, uh, I think my interest shifted into anthropology uh, uh, slowly during the uh, BA study. Um, it was partly that I found anthropology liberating with its uh, focus on diversity and uh, it allowed me to deal with uh, the city which was a new world for me uh, plus the, uh, the uh, traditions of university and the the snobbery of the academe, if you like, um, 
and uh, uh, also I think uh, anthropology gave me a, an opportunity to combine what I had studied in in the gymnasium and science and uh, and the and my recent interest developing interest in in uh, in uh, politics and social life so uh, that's what basically brought me into anthropology yeah that's very interesting and it, it makes a lot of sense actually so uh let me ask you then what led to your specific interest in the interplay between nature and culture in the Anthropocene? Uh, I got interested in the nature-culture issue early on in my BA study, and I was uh, fascinated by the idea of adaptation, how cultures as it was argued, uh, adapted to the flora and fauna sustaining social life. Um, and obviously nature mattered. And um, I, got never, I never got interested in religion and ritual and stuff like that. And somehow I, I, I was always... Uh, grounded in the, the uh, geological sense. Uh, and uh, slowly I got interested in, in the conflation of, of nature and culture. I mean, in early on it, it, there was a clear separation between nature and, and culture. Uh, and it was somehow ingra ingrained in... in uh, in theory and, and, and the whole discourse. Uh, but uh, something was brewing. And one thing, uh, humans were clearly refashioning nature, so nature wasn't independent of us. On, on the contrary, it was, uh, it was uh, rapidly being reformed, the, the oceans and, and the land. And uh, I was fortunate to have uh, Tim Ingold as a mentor and supervisor for my PhD at, at Manchester. And, um, and he happened to be developing these ideas and which led to his, uh, one of his most important book, books, uh, Perception and the Environment. Uh, um, uh, up till then, um, I would call my field ecological anthropology. It was kind of uh, anthropology with an ecological focus, uh, relating different patterns in the ecological puzzle, uh, the land and, and the people, etc. But slowly that shifted into environmental anthropology, which was far more, far broader. Uh, allowed for different readings of the human nature culture interface and uh, this is before the idea of the anthropocene anthropocene arrives on, on the scene 
which was in, in the year 2000, there was something in the air and, uh, and there was a dramatic uh, meeting of the European Association of Social Anthropologists uh, which led to, uh, surprisingly, there were two or three or more sessions on on uh, nature and society and and uh, Philip Descola and I would combine two sessions and, and edit uh, a volume with the title Nature and Society. It became one of the uh, one of the uh, highlights of, of EASA, the European Association, um, and has been heavily cited. So it was nice to to join that uh, movement, so to speak. And there was a, a brewing uh, rebellion against dualisms, and, uh, all kinds of dualisms, and and. Uh, Later on, I would uh, uh, coin the term geosociality with a colleague, uh, Heather Ann Swanson, who is now at Aarhus in Dan Denmark. We published a paper called uh, Down to Earth. And the whole focus was on uh, insisting that uh, the social and the geological couldn't be uh, separated neatly and uh, and um, we were arguing that anthropologists should uh, try to see how the entanglements uh, worked out and um, we were part of a, a project in Oslo led by uh, Marianne Elizabeth Lien um, which was a great experience and um, there I was partly focused on, on uh, what I call domesticating volcanoes. And again, my childhood experience of, of volcanoes uh, showed. Uh, it so happened that in the Westman Islands there was a, another eruption in 1973, uh, which was quite historic because it was on the outskirts of town. And overnight, uh, the whole population, 5,000 people, had to leave by boats to the mainland. Fortunately, no one uh, uh, died in, in that process. Uh, but interestingly, as the uh, eruption unfolded, the islanders started to cool the lava. It was a major experiment uh, with geology, so to speak. And, I happened to be a student in Manchester at the time uh, and so I watched this from TV and, and read the newspapers later on and later on I would uh, write about this uh, extensively. The interesting thing was that uh, the islanders with the help of uh, lots of uh, geologists and engineers uh, started to cool the flowing lava in, in an attempt to save the town and, and, the, and the harbor, one of the most important fishing harbors in the country, and it partly worked. So it's a good saga uh, about humans refashioning the planet uh, according to their need, sort of saving the community. Unfortunately, during the Anthropocene, the, the narrative is, is, 
is uh, different. It's uh, humans have uh, refashioned the whole ecosystem so that it becomes uh, a manage to, to uh, not only humans but all life. Uh, and uh, and eventually the the term the Anthropocene uh, caught on. Um, I guess I resisted it at first. I, for some reason, uh, I found the the geological the notion of a geological epoch uh, uh, unconvincing. But uh, but uh, in a few years, I I got the message. Uh, the times were historic, a fundamentally new age in 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 human life had entered the scene, um, the radical refashioning of, of everything, and including the crust of the planet. And, and uh, it made sense to, to uh, make a label of it. And, and nowadays, uh, uh, this is uh, a huge theme in, in anthropology and, and most fields. Um, and it will be fun to see how it unfolds. Yeah, that actually introduces my next question then. Um, you have spoken about the entanglement of the human body and the environment and um, what you call the reduction of the environment as an object of natural science. Um, what interests you the most about this entanglement? Maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about that. The nature-culture distinction was always around, but uh, many anthropologists uh, in the 1980s, I guess, found the need to uh, deconstruct it, to... Uh, to scrap the dualism itself and to assume that uh, nature and culture were conflated domains. Um, in the process, the body, the human body, was readdressed, and uh, many of us felt that uh, the body needed to be taken more seriously. I mean, in Biology, biological anthropology and, and uh, physical anthropology, the body had been, of course, uh, theorized and studied back and forth. But social and cultural anthropologists tended to see it as a, an empty box, um, only uh, used metaphorically or, or uh, seen as a vessel or... or uh, or thought or, or a canvas for, for the painting of culture and tattoos, for instance. Um, but many people saw that uh, it was important to uh, address the body directly and to consider it uh, fully. There were concerns with the lived body, for instance, and an impact from phenomenology. And there was lots of talk about uh, embodiment. Um, I got interested in, in uh, 
skills and, and skillment. It was part of my a continuation of my PhD work on, on fishing skippers. And uh, I thought it was necessary to uh, return to, to the issue on new, new terms. And I wrote a paper called Enskillment at Sea. Um, and I was arguing that uh, becoming skilled at any task, whether it's uh, writing or fishing, um, painting or whatever, uh, involves embodiment. It involves uh, the whole body. And skills were not simply uh, cognitive uh, storage in, in the brain. Uh, it was the body throughout and, and um, I took the metaphor of, of uh, good sports people. Uh, it, it takes immense uh, skills to play uh, seriously basketball or soccer, etc. And uh, to see the skills as simply the application of a script stored in the uh, brain uh, misses the whole thing, the, the uh, fun of the game and, and, and the learning process. So I, I, I was talking about communities of practice, how we become skilled in the company of other people. And so that embodiment is, uh, is uh, to some extent environmental. It's, it's part of the, the context within which we practice. Um, and uh, there were similar developments in sociology and anthropology and, and philosophy, uh, a return to, to the body on, on new terms. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, played a role in, in my own thinking about this was the arrival of medical anthropology. Of course, that wasn't uh, a new field. It had been around for four years, uh, but uh, there was a strong new movement, so to speak. There were people studying uh, genomic projects, uh, biobanks, genetic engineering, etc., from anthropological viewpoints, and and all of this focused on the body broadly, uh, despite the focus on on uh, genomics. And uh, um, this was one of the things that, that brought me to, to uh, uh, this sort of dualism, nature, culture, in, in the context of, of the human body. Um, I had been studying fisheries for 15 years and, and, and was uh, getting tired of it. I found it uh, repetitive and I didn't have anything more to say. And, Suddenly, there was a, an arrival on the scene in Iceland of a biobank project, uh, which was debated and, and theorized back and forth. And, and I felt it was a kind of my obligation to shift gears and to, to study this development and try to make sense of it. And, and that became a project for 10 years, and it was quite fun. And, at the end of that uh, 
period, I got into studies of race and, and slavery. And uh, I wrote a biography of a man named Hans Jonathan, who, who was enslaved, born into slavery and, in the Caribbean and escaped him to Iceland in 1802 and, and settled. And, and I, I studied, studied Icelanders' uh, uh, responses to his presence and, and uh, that raised questions about uh, skin color and, and race. Big questions on the agenda today, of course. All right, so now something else. Um, you have a new book that's coming out soon titled An Awkward Extinction. Um, it will be published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. Um, the title is very interesting. Would you uh, mind telling the listeners a little bit about that? Uh, what exactly is awkward about the extinction in this case? Um, recently, I became interested in extinction, um, the disappearance of species, um, and in particular, the extinction of the uh, great orc, uh, a flightless bird that was killed uh, finally on the island of Elde, south of Iceland in 1844. Uh, uh, the great auk uh, became a kind of signature species, like the dodo, a species that got progressively rarer and uh, eventually disappeared because of human uh, hunting. Uh, and uh, I was aware of the story of the great orc uh, as a child because it was hunted in the vicinity of the Westman Isles. But uh, I will, and I've, I've been a bird enthusiast uh, since childhood. It was part of, of the nature. I was fascinated by both on the mainland and, and on the island where I grew up. But there was a sudden discovery that sparked my recent uh, uh, obsession, if you like, with, with the great talk. And, and um, it was partly triggered by an article by um, uh, an anthropologist, uh, Petra Kalsov, uh, in the journal Environmental Humanities. And uh, it was about uh, taxidermy and, and uh, Focusing on on uh, on the uh, uh, skinning of uh, of uh, birds and and uh, taxidermic uh, techniques and uh, the uh, exhibit of uh, of uh, birds bodies in museums all over the place and and. Uh, Karlshoff then uh, uh, quoted uh, manuscripts in Cambridge, um, which I wasn't aware of, uh, the Gerfowl books of John Wally, and um, uh, 
soon I realized that a few people had cited these manuscripts, but uh, in Iceland uh, there had been practically no discussion of them. And uh, I decided to uh, dive into these manuscripts because they were unique and, and uh, they were written by John Wally, basically, a British um, doctor and bird enthusiast, and Alfred Newton, uh, a zoologist in, in Cambridge University. And they came to Iceland in 1858, uh, 14 years after the last birds were killed, but they hoped to, uh, they didn't know, and, and they hoped to capture uh, a bird or two and, and to collect some eggs. They knew the bird was uh, rare and, and uh, highly valuable on, on, on markets. Um, so they arranged uh, uh, an, ex an uh, expedition to Iceland and they wanted to go to the island where the last colony was uh, uh, and uh, but due to uh, uh, heavy seas and, 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 and small boats, it was impractical and, and risky. Um, so they stayed two months and, and without managing to get to the island or see any bird. But they interviewed instead uh, 12 of the 14 crew who had been on the last uh, hunting expedition, killing the last two birds. In, in a historic uh, hunting trip and uh, and uh, these are 900 pages of handwritten pages um, mostly on on the interviews uh, with the hunters and and I realized uh, these guys had been uh, had been working like anthropologists and uh, and um, interviewing people and, and getting to know the context and, um, and, and it was fun reading it. It took a while to digest the, the handwriting but uh, eventually I managed and I, and I bought uh, photos of all the, all, all the manuscript. Uh, there is no copy and, and Xeroxing was not allowed so this was somewhat tricky. But um, I've been digesting this manuscript for the last uh, three years and, and writing about them and uh, hopefully uh, uh, my book will be published in, in English with uh, Princeton University Press next year. Um, and, and my book uh, discusses the, uh, the expedition of these two uh, British gentlemen and uh, why they uh, went to Iceland and what they hoped to achieve and, and the social and scientific context of their expedition um, and uh, and I try to flesh out the issue of, of uh, extinction which is a hot thing today uh, uh, given the environmental changes of the of the Anthropocene Yesterday, on 9th uh, August, uh, the IPCC panel uh, 
issued uh, a major uh, uh, report on the state of the planet and, and uh, the impacts of global warming. And uh, no doubt there's lots to see there about extinction. Extinction is rapidly uh, escalating and, uh, and a number of species are disappearing every, every week. Uh, and so uh, extinction is becoming a hot issue in, in, in many fields of study. And increasingly in anthropology, and people like uh, Tom Van Doren and Deborah Bird Rose uh, have been uh, writing about what extinction means and, and doing their ethnography among birds and bird lovers. And, and, uh, um, and it's quite an, quite an interesting uh, field. And, you may ask what makes uh, uh, an extinction awkward, but it's precisely the, the name of the bird in question, which is the focus of my book. And the term awkward is uh, probably derived from the word awk, uh, which is probably based on the sound that people imagined uh, the great dog would make and similar uh, related uh, birds in the Ashka family or whatever we would call it. Uh, but walk and awkward has taken on uh, a number of meanings. It's a complex etymology, but uh, uh, awkward, something odd, sideways is the key meaning and, and uh, um, and this is the awkward extinction, an extinction which uh, happened kind of in broad daylight, heavily documented, um, a bird uh, that was unable to fly, etc. Um, and, and there's an interesting uh, uh, aspect to this. Um, theoretically, um, uh, Alfred Newton, one of the... Uh, authors of the Cambridge manuscript. Um, uh, John Wally, who was the key author, he, he died the year after the expedition, but uh, Newton had a long and successful Cambridge career in, in Cambridge. And, and Newton uh, uh, became friends with uh, Charles Darwin. And, and uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, while the Icelandic expedition was going on in, in July 1858, uh, Darwin and Wallace uh, launched their theory of, of, uh, of uh, natural selection. Uh, um, and uh, when Newton comes to England, he uh, hears about this new theory and, and uh, becomes fascinated but uh, they become friends, uh, Darwin and Newton, and Wallace as well. But uh, Darwin and Newton uh, go different ways, so to speak. Darwin had, had written, uh, of course, wrote The Origin of Species and, and mentions uh, extinction a, a number of times. Um, uh, but he was thinking of uh, extinction in terms of... Uh, 
evolution in, in long durée. It's something that happened in thousands of years, uh, slowly, but uh, Newton uh, became a kind of pioneer of another study of, of extinction. He, he uh, uh, pointed out that extinction was happening here and now, and not as a result of geologic forces, but, but humans. In, and uh, this was a novel perspective, and he became a, a, an activist in, in terms of uh, bird protection, and, and, uh, and uh, he battled for the understanding of extinction as something going on here and now. I think anthropologists have lots to say about extinction, and, and as I said, there's a growing uh, literature and uh, much of the uh, uh, extinction literature focuses on, on the single lives of single uh, animals, as, as if uh, extinction is simply a matter of killing the last number or the last few. But extinction, it's being argued by anthropologists and others, is, is uh, more complex and uh, Newton was arguing in, in the 19th century that extinction was a, a process and that it began long before the last uh, bodies uh, were gone and, uh, and Van Doren and, and others have been arguing that the the single animal is, is uh, embedded in a network of rela relations and, and, and we need to understand that relations, which often uh, involves humans. Um, this relates to what I've been saying on embodiment and, and the, and the um, embedded body and, and uh, relational perspectives in other contexts. And, and um, I think uh, it would be interesting to see uh, further studies by anthropologists of ongoing uh, uh, extinctions um, in different parts of the world and how people understand what's going on and, and, um, and, and uh, trying to nail down the connections and, uh, in, in, in each context. All right, thank you for that. Um, so this next question is a bit broader. Um, do you have any reading recommendations for students or any other people really who have never heard of or really thought about the Anthropocene and uh, all its implications? Um, as to... Uh recommendations for students and, and the public about the Anthropocene. Uh, there's uh, lots of visuals around, uh, documentaries and films and drama and uh, videos and YouTube and elsewhere, and I'm not the best judge of that. But uh, speaking of the, of the literature, uh, there's a lot uh, going on. There is uh, lots of uh, uh, 
writings uh, for the public, uh, uh, trying to engage the uh, layperson. Uh, and of course, there is a growing uh, theoretical literature uh, uh, and um, my argument uh, would be that uh, for students and the public uh, we need to uh, be careful to make our writings uh, understood, appealing to a broad audience precisely because the issues are so overwhelming uh, given the, uh, uh, the big report that was published yesterday. The scene is, is uh, getting crazy and, and we better act now uh, because uh, soon it will be too late, if it's not too late already, um, to slow down the process of global heating and, and to reverse the processes of, of melting, rising sea levels, storms, uh, uh, etc. And I was... Uh, uh, interestingly, I was asked to write. It's the, the first time in my long career uh, I recently retired and, and uh, it's the last book I've published uh, so far. I was asked to write uh, a book about the Anthropocene uh, uh, by a British uh, publisher and, uh, and the rule was uh, it has to be geared for the public uh, it has to be brought in perspective and, and uh, presentation and, and written in plain language and, and with lots of, of uh, photos. And, and um, after some thinking, I, I decided to take this uh, rare offer. And, uh, and the book is out, uh, entitled The Human Age. So um, naturally, I can recommended. This is what I wrote uh, for students and, and the public in, in, a, in a plain language uh, so as to make an impact and, and generate uh, discussion and, and activism. And I took a very strong stance uh, writing the book. Uh, I'm shifting the course from global warming to global heating, uh, sometimes spe speaking of superheating and, uh, and I'm, I'm uh, arguing that uh, um, the public needs to be engaged because uh, of the uh, overwhelming problems and, and hopefully the book will have some um, impact uh, and I'm, I'm pleased to be able to say that it's being translated into both Chinese and, and Japanese so uh, so uh, the impact will be uh, beyond the Anglo-Saxon uh, readers. Uh, and underneath uh, that uh, project was uh, a feeling that I've had for some time that uh, our colleagues have been uh, too busy theorizing at times. And, and we need to be careful with theory. And theory is, is, is vital. Uh, it uh, opens vistas and, and like art, literature, uh, paint, paintings and films, uh, it, it, uh, it uh, 
appeals to uh, uh, events that are unfolding and still not seen, um, kind of a little ahead of the times often, um, but uh, to uh, uh, to generate the momentum we now need in the environmental domain, we need to be careful with uh, not uh, providing overdoses of theory because it, it makes people possibly uh, uh, stay away from the issues. And, but uh, I, I would like to mention two recent books which are, are vitally important and, and very interesting. Uh, they're demanding but they are, they are great and one is the book Critical Zones by, edited by Bruno Latour and, and uh, Peter Weipel. It's a, it's a rare collection of a number of articles by different people and different uh, fields uh, the arts and uh, theory and, and empirical studies, and, uh, but it focuses on the critical zone of zones of the planet, uh, uh, kind of uh, the life world of humans and and uh, and its impacts uh, into the crust. Uh, that's a critical zone. Uh, uh, and the other book is, is a book by, uh, by Nigel Clark and, and uh, Bronislav Sersinski, British sociologists, philosophers, and the title is Planetary Social Thought. Um, this is not easy reading, but it's, it's uh, well thought. And uh, both, both of these volumes are, are saying that uh, uh, we need to develop a planetary social thought, uh, um, a social science of, of the planet. And um, it resonates with uh, what I've been saying about geosociality. Um, these are some of the uh, uh, remarks I would like to make about uh, literature and visual material for students and the public to, to spark interest and, and activism in the, in the environmental domain. Yeah, a social science of the planet. I think many people would agree with that and be very interested in that. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Um, this actually very much relates to my last question. Um, you've already talked about this a little bit, but I want to ask more directly, how do you think the humanities can make a difference in the realm of environmental discourse? There's a lot talked about today, uh, uh, which we call environmental humanities. And it's a sign of the times. And uh, I think it's a great move Forward, uh, there are uh, institutes uh, with that label. There is a great journal, Environmental Humanities, and, and uh, uh, research projects. Uh, no doubt there will be departments in universities. And, uh, and this involves uh, the fusion of... Uh, of related art, related disciplines uh, like uh, environmental history, geography, 
psychology, anthropology, and several other fields. And uh, and 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 the and the field environmental humanities clearly uh, is uh, sparked by dissent within the uh, academe. Uh, uh, there has been growing uh, resentment uh, with the uh, uh, narrow definition of of uh, science and and uh, and the. Uh, Allocation of funding. Uh, I was uh, a member of the board of the U humanities for the European Science Foundation for a few years, and and I was uh, irritated by the fact that uh, um, most of the funding was allocated to uh, the natural sciences, and. Uh, and uh, the humanities, social sciences, and the humanities were relegated to the sidelines. And despite the fact that people were increasingly realizing that uh, to understand the uh, issue of climate change and, and the problems of the planet during the Anthropocene, one, one definitely needs the actors themselves. Uh, and humans are the culprits in, in the refashioning of the planet and the ruining of the en environment. And, and it's silly to uh, leave the study of humans and society out of the equation. And, and uh, quite simply, the, the funding policies of, of uh, major bodies like the European Science Foundation and probably now the European Research Council and the American uh, Science Foundation, etc. Although lots, is, lots of things are changing on, on this front, but uh, many of us uh, thought that it was important to reshuffle the cards and to allocate funding more uh, more evenly and, and to allow far more space for humanities and social science studies. Um, it's interesting if, if one looks at the history of, of modeling of the environment, the, the biological uh, graphs and, and, uh, uh, and, and flowcharts developed in the 70s and 80s, uh, they tended to have the human elements somewhat marginally as one of the uh, impetus is in, in the models, but uh, clearly quite marginal. And, and uh, uh, it now, it's now obvious that uh, the human factor is, is everywhere and, uh, and, and it uh, intermingles with, with the rest, uh, so that uh, it's uh, necessary to reshuffle the models and and no doubt the um, IPCC report and, and, and uh, uh, somehow uh, uh, reflect this uh, rethinking, uh, although I haven't studied the report yet carefully, but I imagine there's a lot of more space for the humanities in, in, in the uh, last, in the new, brand new report. Um, and uh, um, 
part of my work for the European uh, Science Foundation was the uh, organization of, of uh, a working group to, to focus precisely on, on issues like that. And, and I was arguing that uh, anthropology and, and related fields could contribute significantly and, and that it was important to rethink anthropos, the notion of humans and, and our place in the universe in this context. And, and I uh, uh, arranged uh, a working group which was quite effective and, and we published uh, an article on anthropos in the Anthropocene, something like that. And, and, um, and, and, and we were arguing that the humanities and social sciences needed more space, but not only that, it needed to, to rethink uh, uh, the sciences and, and the place of humans in the grand scheme of things and, and, uh, and the actions needed to, to uh, reverse some of the damaging impacts of, of the Anthropocene. Um, um, what would be our contribution on this score in the future? I mean, how would environmental humanities uh, contribute and, and develop? Uh, I think it will be a thriving field in the near future because primar primarily of, of, of the alarming threats of the environment. Uh, and I imagine uh, uh, a variety of scholars within the social science and the humanities will sit on the relevant boards for allocating funds and for making decisions, will be sitting at the same table and, and um, developing a, a democratic uh, dialogue across the uh, desk, so to speak. And, and our empirical task will be partly to do solid ethnographies of environmental change and, and uh, the unfolding of, say, uh, the melting of glaciers and, and, uh, and, and the causes of these changes and, and human responses, etc. Um, and extinction comes in here, as I mentioned, uh, uh, extinction um, in the anthropological uh, understanding involves entanglements and it's not the, just the great dog, it's not just the rare species that are falling now, the final bodies, so to speak, uh, during this age of uh, extinction. It, it's the entanglements and, and networks of, of, uh, of uh, the beings involved in the same habitat. And, and um, humans, of course, are part of that entanglement and, and that network. And, and we need to, uh, to study this from, the, from many sides uh, within the environmental humanities and the, the social sciences. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time for this interview. I am very excited to share this with anyone interested in such an important topic. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing and watching your talk at the conference. Um, also, many thanks for being so flexible regarding the time and the format of this interview.
All right. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast series. Let's talk about the Anthropocene. If you are interested in joining our digital conference uh, titled Worlds, Zones, Atmospheres, Seismographies of the Anthropocene, which will take place, as I have said, from the 27th of September until the 1st of October 2021, uh, please visit our website for further information and registration information. You can find us at www.dgska.de. You can also follow us on Twitter, um, Facebook, and Instagram as well under the hashtag DGSKANTHROPOCENE or DGSKANTHROPOCENE. Um, you can also find this information on our podcast. Um, there you are more than welcome to participate in any kind of debate, uh, to ask questions, and of course, listen to the next contribution. Thank you.